0: Welcome to the Codcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. It's still nearly two years off, but Massachusetts will have an election for governor in November of next year. At this early stage, there is exactly one declared candidate in the race, former Democratic State Senator Ben Downing, and he is here this week on the Codcast. Hey there, Ben. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Michael. Appreciate it.
0: So, you know, I was thinking, uh, getting ready for this about that. There's this Thomas Jefferson line where he called the presidency, a splendid misery. And I kind of couldn't help but think that, you know, Charlie Baker might be saying the same thing today. Uh, so why do you want this job?
1: Because I think the potential of Massachusetts is limitless. And I think what we've been missing is leadership with a sense of urgency that taps into that potential to solve the big problems facing us. And yes, that'll be tough work. It is not easy, there is a reason. That issues like climate change, transportation, finance, uh, you know, universal childcare—why they haven't been addressed? Um, but we have the potential at our fingertips, and that's why I'm running to to try to tap into that potential to help communities like those I've grown up in, Pittsfield, East Boston, and so many others just like them.
0: And and you in your announcement said you uh, said we need to build. A community and an economy that works for everyone. What do you What do you mean by that? And and uh, have we fallen short in that?
1: Yeah, I think there are any number of you know uh, statistics that would show us that economic inequality, that uh, wealth gaps, have not only persisted in Massachusetts, but have grown wider and wider. And and those gaps are you know from one end of the economic spectrum to the other there are racial wealth gaps that the boston fed in particular in suffolk county has documented right the gap from 247,000 is the median wealth of a white family to 8 dollars for an african american family and then there are regional inequities right in the the rate of growth and the the strength of the economies in pittsfield and our other gateway sitting cities and the surrounding communities and then here in greater Boston, right, significantly different universe. universes. If, if my mother's home in Pittsfield were put on the market in Boston two and a half hours east, it would get three times what she'll probably get for it in Pittsfield if she ever sells it, all within a state that's effectively the size of Silicon Valley. So I, I think we can build a much fairer, stronger Massachusetts where there is a greater shared opportunity, um, certainly a fairer economy that shares more wealth um, by investing in those communities, uh, and by taking on some of those big problems we talked about. So those
0: of us who've, uh, sort of been in and around Beacon Hill for a while, uh, certainly know you well and know your, know your history, uh, and your record, but I, I'm sure for a lot of folks, uh, you, you're, you're not as familiar. So, I mean, just help us understand a little bit, uh, uh understand Ben Downey a little bit better. One thing I'm, you know, I'd love to ask about. So you're 39, if I if my uh, my my crack research uh, is accurate. But you were elected to the state senate at age 25, which is pretty remarkable. And the other thing that sort of struck me, I think that's the exact same age that Jane Swift was elected to the exact same seat representing uh, the far western uh, part of the state. So uh, what's it about? What's what's that about out there? <laughs>
1: Well first maybe to to draw a, another connection right um I had Jane Swift's mom as a teacher in high school uh Jane Swift was uh, was and remains one of the kindest people I've ever met in my life um, my dad was running for district attorney uh in 1990 when Jane was running for the state senate and there were more than a few occasions where we were all uh, holding signs outside of the same polling places and uh beyond my admiration for for uh, Jane Swift and our uh, beyond any political differences, she will always be the candidate that had the best donuts uh, at those standouts, uh, including the the uh, notorious Bavarian cream uh, donut that Dunkin' Donuts no longer has for some reason. But uh, yeah, I I don't know. I think the Berkshires, you know, we've seen a lot of young people leave Pittsfield and North Adams, mine and, and Jane's hometowns. Right. And I think, you know, there is an openness when young people come back and when they uh, have something to offer when they're able to, to you know outline the challenges that they think would help bring more of their uh, their classmates and their generation back there's an openness to that um, uh, a willingness to to give a young person a chance and so yeah I ran in in 2006 and it was you know by no means a plan right I was in grad school at Tufts uh, you know I, I had a nice internship lined up that I was working and The state Senate seat opened up and, you know, I was talking myself out of running for that seat um, when I was on the phone with my younger brother and he literally hung up on me. Like, I didn't know it. I thought the phone dropped. I called him back and said, hey, sorry, I have bad coverage. And he said, no, you're being an idiot. You've got this great opportunity. You know, this is the community that gave us every opportunity in life. Go out there and talk to people about how you want to try to make it so that more of us can go back. And it can be the, the Pittsfield, the Berkshires, the Western Mass. We all know it can be. And,
0: and maybe tell us a little, since you mentioned it more about your family, and I know in your, you know, in your kickoff video, you talked about losing uh, both your dad and uh, one of your brothers to heart disease suddenly, and obviously your, your brother at a very young age and your dad was still a, a, a young man himself, um, and you sort of sort of talked about how that's shaped you. Can you talk a little
1: about that? Yeah, I mean I I think a couple of things just generally Michael, right? Like it it both of those losses and I think, you know, all loss is is unique and and painful regardless of the the time and the circumstances and and too many people have had to deal with that over this last year. For me the impact was to to deepen my empathy, right? It was I'm someone who I knew how lucky I was growing up but I don't think I fully appreciated it until I lost my dad um you know when when he passed in 2003 and that became a connection point for me when I would meet people in my life and then later on the campaign trail and in the senate who were dealing with loss themselves right and and oftentimes loss that was completely different but it was still that same pain that's still that same hole in your life um, practically, I don't know if I ever would have run for the state senate if my father was still alive. And, is that right? Uh, it's just—it's not that I—I I, I would have wanted to give back to my community in some way. Um, but one of the reasons I was able to muster the 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 confidence to run um, was that one of the first public speeches I ever had to give was my father's eulogy. And when you know you've stood in front of a church of your family and friends when your whole world is shattered. Um, and you can get through that, then speaking to a local Democratic town committee, to a neighborhood association, uh, to a big crowd, uh, isn't all that daunting anymore. Um, and it also, it, you know, that experience, we had people show up at our house for days and during the services and after just to check on us you know, to drop off the 17th platter of deli meats and cheeses that we didn't need, but that was the only thing they knew how to do. Literally, the the folks at Samuel's Deli had to start rejecting orders, and we just started making donations to the Christian Center in Pittsfield. Um, That community was always there for us, and yet that's the same community that people told me growing up had nothing to offer us, that we ought to study hard and get away from it. And that was part of the reason I wanted to run, because I looked at those people who were there for us, who lined the streets for my dad and said they deserve better than to be written off. And I know that's true of communities like Pittsfield uh, across Massachusetts. Um, So those experiences, they, you know, they they just deepen that resolve and that desire to give back. And, um, you know, in particular with Nate's loss, right, you know, Nate was... Nate was my best friend. We became incredibly close after my dad passed. I mean, we both went to Providence College. We we had a lot of these similar experiences. Like I said, he he pushed me into the Senate race in some ways. Uh, he then went and got an internship at the Supreme Court and did nothing to help the campaign other than <laughs> nit, nitpick it from nine hours away, um, which he would vouch for if he were still here with us. Um, you know, Nate... You know, losing my dad deepened my empathy. For Nate, it was that sense of urgency, right? You know, Nate, Nate had every gift that I've been given, and so much more. Um, just incredibly talented, better writer, smarter, you name it. I could go through all of it. Um, but I got a gift that he didn't get, which is time on this earth, years. And I came away from that experience, um, you know, even more impatient and certainly more urgent. And, um, you know, less tolerant of the idea that we can just put off trying to do good work, put off trying to solve big problems to the, to the next year, to the next session, to the next decade, right? Which too often is what happens in Massachusetts.
0: And uh, I mean, that's, I mean, the way you sort of describe the impact of that loss, I mean, it's powerful. I'm sure people have said it to you. You can't help at this moment, but sort of think about sort of the echoes uh, of, of what we've heard about. President Biden's experience with that and how he's, you know, I guess tried to channel that incredible pain and loss and sort of help it to kind of fuel his kind of continued efforts to press forward. I mean, you know, most recently with the loss of his son, uh, you know, he's talked about how it was easy to think about just curling up and saying you're done and that he's kind of tried to instead sort of use that. You know, use that grief sort of, you know, in in a, in a way to sort of move ahead. It sounds sounds similar, and 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 again, I'm sure this is nothing unique. I'm sure you guys are just have the platform to share publicly, kind of how, you know how loss and grief get get uh, processed and channeled by everyone. It's such a, it's the universal experience we all go through.
1: Yeah, it's it's also, I mean, we've had examples in our lives, right? Like for me, you know, my, my grandmother, we grew up one street over from my grandmother. Um, my grandfather passed away when um, about a year, I think a year, year and a half, not long after the youngest of the ninth in their family was born. Right. And, you know, my grandmother, 44 years old, nine kids in the house. Wow. Um, you know, she was a, a secretary at the Catholic schools uh, of Pittsfield, uh, secretary in the guidance department. Um, and she held that family together. Right. And, and I had, you know, the older uncles came back, you know, left school, took jobs. Um, and that family rallied around one another. Right. And they had their ups and downs. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I still have this vivid memory of seeing my grandmother at my dad's funeral, right? And she's holding, uh, you know, a, a downing for district attorney button uh, every once in a while, sort of winking at me when she had, you know, shook hands and given a hug to someone that she might not have otherwise shook hands and given a hug to, right? Um, you know, and when you can get through loss like that and and smile and come out at the other side, um, then I think it gives you it gives you a little bit of something in your backbone, um, but it also gives you a soft spot that you you know, you know what it is to struggle. You know what that pain and that loss is, mm-hmm. and it gives you a place to connect with people, right? And I, I think that's we lose a lot of that in in our world these days. And I think it's it's important to retain that and hold on to that. Um, and it's something I've tried to hold on to. It it's um, you know I I want to honor my dad and my brothers. Memory with the life that I lead, and that is a, a constant challenge for me every day. Um, but it's a, a high bar that I want to strive for.
0: And you've mentioned your father and talked about buttons for him. He was the district attorney in 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 Berkshire County at the time yeah. he died. He was in his fifties, am I right when he died? Yeah,
1: yeah. He was district attorney for uh, thirteen years. That was my first real big political experience. Right in nineteen ninety when he ran. Uh, going out I was I was the oldest I was nine years old going out holding signs with them you know I I thought politics was getting to eat pizza and pancakes and you know go to fairs like you name it like it was great but I also you know I I I was old enough to appreciate you know moments when I would see people come up to my dad and talk to him about their concerns about their their fears but also their, their hopes and their dreams for what they they thought the community should be and um and then just you know his model of of leadership beyond you know the big trials that he had um you know my dad coached youth basketball at the Catholic youth center every saturday morning right five and five and six year olds you know in a noisy gym with kids who are running back and forth and sometimes shooting at the wrong hoop right and you know he's there friday night trying to write out the the rotation to make sure that every kid gets a chance to play gets a chance to carry the ball up. Um, And it wasn't just because, you know, that was sort of a Zen time for him. He could be out there on the court with kids. But it was also to show them, like, there's a leader in this community that cares about you. And a lot of those kids who were playing on those teams had parents my dad would see during the week, right? And um, his example is a powerful one to this day, you know, in in his career and the type of dad he was. Um, It's what I aim to be.
0: And that certainly his 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 influence is what got you kind of bitten with the political bug it sounds like early on and you even not only elected at 25 but even before that you'd already worked uh several years uh for members of the of the state's congressional delegation so uh it sounds like you were uh sort of on a political track early on
1: so so I would just want to say that because it's funny it looks like a straight line uh on paper like, I, I thought I was going to law school, right? Providence College, I'm going to go to law school. I applied to law schools, and everyone but one of the law schools I applied to didn't think I was ready to go to law school right away. And no,
0: they thought you'd do better at other things.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I needed that spin in the summer of 2003, Michael. Oh, I bet. My, uh, and I, I got into Suffolk. Suffolk is where my dad went, and that was my, like, I went to Providence where my dad went, not by design. It's just where uh, where I landed. You know, I got into Suffolk where he went, and I just wasn't going to go. And um, now I didn't have a plan. I was mowing lawns at Tanglewood um, and thinking a lot, which is good because there's a lot of lawns to mow, so a lot of time to think. Yeah. Um, and I, I lucked out. My college roommate was moving to D.C. and he was moving to D.C. to go to grad school at GW, and I went there just to get out of Pittsfield. I, I knew I had to do something else, um, and so it wasn't a plan to go to work on Capitol Hill. That's just kind of where I landed. So I, I share that just because. In yeah. particular, when I talk to interns at the state house and stuff, I'm like, don't think there's a straight line here, right? Like it, it's you're going to go through some ups and downs, and and you'll learn.
0: from And it sounds like I mean your You said your dad took, coached, uh, you know, CYO basketball. Is I mean, was that also kind of a pillar or a strong part of your upbringing? That uh, the church and in your Catholic faith, and even Providence College, the Catholic school yeah. you went to, as your father did, as as uh mayor ray flynn i don't know i'm thinking about political figures around the state i always think of him when i think of providence college
1: yeah yeah i mean we we grew up you know going to church every sunday morning at saint Teresa's, uh one of several parishes in pittsfield that isn't there anymore right one of several churches Mm, right Um, you know when my when my kid brother nick graduated from saint joe's central high school the next year was the first year in 49 years. There wasn't a downing as a student uh, at wow. St. Joe's, right? You know, we were we were dedicated income to the Catholic Church uh, that yeah. way. Um, yeah, and we we're, you know, sat in the same place. All were altar servers. Um, and, and while my faith has come and gone over my life, um, the, the values I learned there, right? The values that, you know, my, my parents instilled in me, that our grandmother instilled in us you know they they're they're what i think of when i think of the best values of that church.
0: So let's like switch a little to the the here and now and and this race yeah. and i'm just curious how you sort of look at this job of of governor and what the elements are because there's obviously the big broad you know vision and the political philosophy that you bring to it and to the issues that you deal with. But as the this pandemic has made clear in a way that maybe nothing else has quite so Uh, so strikingly, the first order of business is really just manage the pressing issues affecting the well-being of residents and the functioning of government. Uh, You know, it's that managerial uh, job that you you need to tend to before you, or alongside, you know, whatever the kind of grander uh, ideas you have. Uh, Is that, how do you sort of see the job in terms of those, you know, at least those two big buckets and two parts of it?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say, Michael, that there's the sort of the the vision bucket and the the execution, right? The day-to-day bucket. One spot where I might push back a little bit though is that you know, th- those two are not they're not silos in that, you know, I don't think anyone could have foreseen a pandemic on the scale and with the impact of COVID-19, right? Uh, But we knew that tough times would come, even if we were in, uh, you know, a a boom back from uh, the previous recession, right? You know, we know there are these ups and downs. We know there are challenges, even if we can't look out into the future with 2020 vision and see what it will look like. And, you know, for me, that's where our leadership has come up short, whether in the corner office or in the legislature, is taking the steps in those you know more stable times that will, um, you know, will take the edge off the worst parts of the of the downturn. So I think for to be a good governor, you not only have to have that vision, right? Um, the the broader vision, the broader goals, uh, but you need to be able to execute not just in times of crisis, but in the day to day to build trust and to take the steps that will make uh, the the sort of the ups and downs. You know that that much less peaky, right? To to try to take the edge off, like that's that's the role of state government to avoid the worst of that, and especially for communities that have too long been you know left to feel the brunt of of environmental injustice, economic injustice, uh, and racism, right? So I, I think I think a successful governor, a successful leader, is someone who has the ability to set the vision and then manage in the day to day working towards that vision. Because if you just manage in the day to day, Right? At some point, you're chasing the day-to-day and you lose a feel for the broader goal and the broader set of, uh, of principles and values you're trying to work towards. So
0: how would you, in that uh, sort of lens, how would you size up Charlie Baker's performance as governor?
1: I think Charlie Baker is a good man and a dedicated public servant, right? He's someone who I disagree with on the issues. And I think he's someone who has had, you know, has accumulated significant political capital, right? Um and I think the instances, the examples of him using that capital to address those big challenges, to address climate and economic and racial justice are few and far between, right? Um I I think it is easy for people running for office to Monday morning quarterback some of the decisions at the front end of the pandemic. Uh, I think it's important to have those debates. I think to a degree it's unfair because of just how uh, how earth-shattering and altering those moments were. And I think we need to remember that uh, as we move forward here. Um, I think coming up out of it, right, and I think that's the frustration with the vaccine rollout, right, is that like this is the one we had the time for. This is the one that we should have learned some of the lessons from previous mistakes on previous websites and other rollouts on. So. I think it's incomplete at this point, right? You know, I'm I'm not one to provide a, a grade one way or the other, but I think Governor Baker has missed the opportunity to use that political capital to address the big challenges that Massachusetts faces, and I think, you know, we're we're weaker for it.
0: And even though I mean, I get to let's get to some of those bigger issues, but just as as you say and I think you're being extremely uh generous or maybe just fair to say you know, at the outset, it was so unprecedented and, and, you know, and and the decisions that were, that had to be made quickly, um, you know, it was hard to know what was the right way to go. But um, be that as it may, are you saying now, I mean, this issue that we've known almost since the pandemic started almost a year ago, we immediately started hearing, right, they had sequenced the virus and the race was on for a vaccine. So we had almost a year, you know, preparation to know that we were hoping there was going to be before too long a vaccine. I mean, have they really given that? Is it pretty um, inexcusable, I guess, just how how badly things have gone in terms of the website, in terms of kind of knowing what the distribution model was going to be, you know, these mass sites versus now we're hearing from, you know, uh, municipal public health departments, they're upset that you know, vaccines they were gonna distribute are being pulled back on it. It feels a little, frankly, chaotic, and, and chaotic in a way that maybe uh, it, it shouldn't be, given the, the lead time we've had on this on this phase of things.
1: Yeah, it, it's beyond frustrating, and uh, there aren't any excuses for where we land right now. Right before we began this discussion, I'm in a text thread with, with my brother and sister. Our mom's 70 years old. We're trying to get uh, our mom an appointment, um, you know, we've had the app crash on us a few times, like everyone has, trying to work our way through it. And again, like we knew this one was coming. It's not enough to say, well, two million people came to the website on a day, so you just have to shrug your shoulders and say, hey, that's where we're going to land, right? It's not enough to say that we know that there are longstanding and, and understandable concerns uh, in communities of color around vaccination because of a history of medical racism. Um, and so that's why the numbers are bad. No, we need to go out there and proactively and atten- intentionally partner with local organizations to address that on the front end. We had the time. We didn't use that time. Um, and that is a mistake. And it's a mistake we're paying for dearly as we see vaccination rates in communities with the lowest rate of COVID going up, while vaccination rates in communities with the highest rates of COVID holding steady and persistently lower uh, than they should be, right? So um, so I think, yes, this is the frustrating part. It, it seems like we had a a much more public and open process around how the economy was going to reopen in the summer than we did about how we were going to roll out the vaccine. Well, if you don't get the vaccine right, we're not going to get to reopen the economy the way that we want to, right? Um, so that's, a, that's the frustrating thing for me. It's... It, where and when we've had processes that would actually allow us to be successful.
0: Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about, again, uh, sort of stepping outside of the the crisis we're in, sort of this broader vision in ways that you think the state could be, you know, moving ahead much more uh, aggressively in ways that we've kind of missed the boat or missed opportunities. And, and just talk a little about the uh, clean energy efforts. That's something you had a lot to do with during your time in the Legislature, and we haven't really gone into it, but when you left the Legislature a few years ago, you, you left and started working uh, for a uh, clean energy firm in the private sector. So we've got this uh, you know, effort now to move toward a uh, carbon neutral uh, energy plan. You think that the goal is not ambitious enough and that we could be at 100% renewable uh, What within the decade? Is the goal you've set, or
1: I, I would say, a hundred percent electricity, a hundred percent clean electricity by twenty thirty, uh, and you. then one hundred percent clean energy by twenty forty, um, and
0: and what would we have to do, practically speaking, that we're not doing? How would we, how would you get us on that track in a way that we're kind of lagging?
1: Yeah. So the the first part, right, would have been instead of vetoing the climate legislation at the end of last session, right. Um, and relying on tired old arguments around costs without examining benefits of climate action, it would have been signing that legislation into law and then working right away to implement it right That is ambitious and significant legislation, but it also requires a great deal of work by the administrative agencies to develop the policies, the tools the incentives to hit those goals. And you know, Senator Barrett and Representative Golden know this in the legislation they outlined. It's important work. We've got to do that and get on to the next steps. Um, and that looks like everything from you know encouraging use of electric vehicles, continued encouragement of solar and battery storage, continuing to try to deploy offshore wind where and when we can, and then redoubling our efforts on energy efficiency and conservation. Um, all of that needs to be done. But and it's important, and and this is I think central to how I've tried to think about issues and continue to think about issues, Michael. We can't just think about climate as all right, we're doing climate over here and we're gonna take you know transportation and housing, we'll have those debates somewhere else. You know, all of that work that we just talked about in climate that needs to get done is critically important. But if we're cutting funding for the MBTA and our, our other RTAs, if we're failing to invest more in the MBTA and the other RTAs then you know we're cutting off our nose to spite our face like we we aren't actually marshaling all of the resources of state government to take on this generational challenge right, right. so i think there have been no, numerous examples where the baker administration not only hasn't shown the urgency on climate change but where they haven't shown the the understanding of its interconnectedness to every other part of state government right and that's everything from You know, making a commitment to increase funding for uh, resiliency and environmental justice communities, to trying to change the way the utilities do business to make it easier to bring on more clean energy, and then trying to come up with incentives to help people make the transition away from heating oil, to do the home energy audits, to do all of the the nitty gritty work in buildings and in our transportation systems. We need to to hit these goals, Uh, but you don't do it with half measures. And you don't do it listening to the same tired old arguments and debates that we've had for the last 20 years. Those are settled. We've got to focus on doing the work.
0: And so some of this work and some of the ambition that you would have for the state does involve uh, more revenue and, and more spending. And so we know we've got this uh, so-called millionaire's tax sitting there as a as something that voters are going to probably be asked to weigh in on, uh, which you support. Are Are there other... Other ways you think we should be looking to bring in more revenue? What kind of uh, measures would you support or push?
1: Yeah, so um, yes, we need to look for other ways. And and we also shouldn't wait on the millionaire's tax, right? Like we don't know what the outcome of that will be. We do know that we need to make more investment in you know, key areas, whether it's transportation, housing, universal childcare, right? Those type of investments are going to require the state to spend more money to make more investments and you do that through comprehensive tax reform you do that by you know having the goal of that comprehensive tax reform be that we ask more uh, of the wealthiest in our communities those who have benefited over uh, the over the economic uh, uptick of the last decade before covid and uh, those that have even benefited during COVID. That would be like taxes
0: I'd... on uh, capital gains, or how would you look at that?
1: Yeah, sure. Whether it's capital gains, whether it's the, the income tax rate itself, all of those ought to be on the table, right? And we had a framework for this under uh, under Governor Patrick, uh, where uh, we were able to, in, in his proposal, it would have gone up on the income tax, down on the sales tax, lowered the overall effective tax rate. It, that's the type of broad thinking that we need to have, um, and I think you need to have it at the start of an administration and have that debate, because I, I know those debates are tough. I have the scar tissue from those debates over time, but it's important if we actually want to make these investments. And and the example that I come back to, um, folks rightly celebrated the Student Opportunity Act, and thankfully, you know, the work of Senator Chang Diaz and other others was signed into law, but the frustrating thing there is that's phased in over seven years. So a kid who's in middle school, right, by the time that's fully funded, by the time we have equitable funding for uh, for our schools, that kid is either in the workforce or in college. Right. And why is that? Because we have refused to have this tough debate. We've refused to find a way to ask more of those who have benefited from economic growth and the communities that have benefited from economic growth. We've refused to ask more of them because it's a politically tough decision, I can't abide that, we're better than that. Mm-hmm.
0: And just, uh, we should wrap up, but lastly, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your, your uh, trajectory, literally. Uh, you were, you're a Western Mass guy, you represented that area, you're from Pittsfield, uh, but you now uh, live with your family in East Boston, so you've gone from probably you know, the most rural area of the state to one of, uh, one of its densest communities. What's that, what's that been like? And sort of what have you taken from that experience?
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, we love East Boston, right? It's, uh, it's actually, it's the neighborhood that my, my dad's parents and their family first came to. Is that right? Yeah. We can take Malcolm and Eamon for a walk and point at the house that, uh, you know, his, uh, that their grandmother grew up in, the house their grandfather grew up in. The first the first two if not three of my dad's brothers and sisters were born in East Boston before they went out to Pittsfield. So
0: there's that old like pioneer thing go west young man, but for you guys <laughs> it just meant western mass. You didn't go to Oklahoma or the prairie.
1: Yeah, yeah, stop short a little bit. The the, hill, the hills caught John Downing, right? So, yeah, no we we've loved the experience. We love we love the neighborhood, we love the community. Uh, you know, before this, I I loved riding the T with with Mac every day to bring him to the East Boston Y. It's a vibrant community. It It's a community that's in many ways radically different than than Pittsfield and Western Mass. And in a lot of ways, it's the same, right? A place that's had to struggle and fight to get equitable access to the resources it needs. Um, and I think that's one of the things I hope to bring to the race, Michael, is you know, I think too often in Massachusetts, because we've all had to fight so hard to get what what our communities need, Every region thinks someone else is benefiting from the status quo. And, you know, I can make the case and having seen it in my own life that, you know, it's that we're not doing nearly enough in communities like Pittsfield and East Boston. And there's a lot more common ground between and among those communities than there are that separates them. And and I hope, you know, that that's the bet of this campaign in some ways. And and I would hope one way or the other, it's a a bit of the outcome uh, when all is said and done.
0: Well, it's been great talking and uh, we got a long way to go in this uh, race for governor from to 2022. I'm sure we'll hopefully have a chance to chat again, but I want to thank you, Ben Downing, for, uh, for talking to us today. Thanks for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. Stay safe and be well, everyone. And you've been listening to another episode of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.